Why don't we turn once again in our Bibles back to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We finished the fourth chapter last week, so has us in chapter 5 this morning. And just want to say as a preface to that, as I was kind of studying and preparing, I, I really would like to cover, uh, in fact, the next section coming up, verses 3 down through verse 16, where Paul gives these unique instructions about distributions to widows and caring uh, for those in financial need within the body of Christ. And I really would like to cover that as its own unit and teaching, verses 3 through verse 16. I think there's some really great wisdom there that's very applicable in an area that a lot of times uh, the body of Christ perhaps has some confusion on. So in light of that, this morning I just want to address verses 1 and 2 in front of us, and perhaps if time allows, maybe just to kind of peek at another portion of Scripture as well. So we're just going to focus in on verses 1 and 2 as their own teaching this morning. But as we do, would you stand with me out of respect for God's Word as I read this morning's Scripture, First, First uh, Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. And Father, we just humbly ask as we continue now to worship by availing our hearts to the truth of the word of God, that Lord, you would take away every distraction within us, in our minds, among us, and that Lord, we can really just be receptive to the voice of your Holy Spirit and what he wants to say to us individually and collectively as a church family, as those who've chosen to be here in the house of the Lord this day with this text from the word of God in front of us as our assignment. So please, Lord, as always, we ask, prepare us and speak to us, not with wise or persuasive words of a man, but by the demonstration of your spirit and power, communicating things to our hearts. And we ask this expectantly together in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I want to ask a question this morning. Don't shout out because it would violate the very question. But how important is exercising good manners in regards to how we treat other people? Apparently, it does matter to God because to me, I see God in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 5 here addressing that very subject within the Word of God. If you were to title this morning's message, I think it would be a fair title to entitle this morning's message, Biblical Manners. Biblical Manners. And like other things, sadly, I would say those of you who have even more years on me chronologically, I'm sure you could ascend even more. I feel like sadly declining in each successive generation is this thing we would refer to as good manners versus bad manners. And again, manners are defined as follows, if it should be helpful, ways of behaving toward people that are socially correct and show respect, being considerate of other people and how we act or speak and relate to them. You know, another very similar term, we hear it a lot less, certainly, but it is sort of a complementary term to manners, is the term etiquette. And etiquette refers to, by way of definition, a customary code of polite behavior amongst the society or the members of a particular group. So proper etiquette is basically being courteous, 
amongst the society or amongst the particular group showing courtesy and interactions. And sadly, in each passing generation, I think the value of and the importance of seeking to have good manners, seeking to use good manners versus bad manners is kind of decreasing in the way that we treat one another. There's sort of a growing, my personal conviction, lack of consideration that people seem to show towards one another in human interactions. There's way less focus on paying attention to or seeking to be courteous, to try and be polite, to be respectful and what that means, and the neglect of honoring proper etiquette to some degree, and we're ignoring that which is socially correct, that which would be respectful, and I tell you, it is doing a great disservice to society, it's doing a great disservice to families and to human relationships, and I think what is sad is when as God's family, as God's children, we don't mind our manners, (laughs) You know, any good parent is going to, to some degree, work with their children to try and seek to instill in them, right, good manners and how to try and drive out of them bad manners, whether that's how you interact as a family, the way they behave in school or their conduct in society. And any parent is going to try and teach their child how to behave to the best of that ability in the area of good manners versus bad manners. Well, look, God's a parent. He's a heavenly father, and he does a much better job in raising children perfectly as a good, perfect parent than any of us ever could, and he wants to raise good, healthy, respectful children in all ways as well, and even in regards to this idea of just respectful, polite behavior, proper, courteous conduct as we relate to one another as family that we would have manners in the way that we conduct ourselves towards one another. And here, I think we find one of numerous New Testament passages that give to us God's instruction, the Father's instruction to his children. He's trying to raise children. What is proper biblical etiquette? The way that we should conduct ourselves in a degree where we're being respectful of others, considerate of others, and we're just using good manners good manners in the way that we relate to one another in our interactions. So manners and etiquette clearly matter to God. They matter in relational health, and I think they should matter to us. If it matters to God, if it matters to healthy relationships, how we treat people, because it is a major part of life, it's worthy to take consideration of. And here in verses 1 and 2, Paul's instructing Timothy as a man, and of course we know as a younger minister, who remember, when I say younger, he's in his mid-30s, 30-ish at this time, how to relate to, in verses 1 and 2, he clearly describes different categories of people, how to relate to older men, how to relate to younger men, how to relate to older women, how to relate to younger women, and how to treat them properly, being sensitive at times, who he's speaking to, who he's offering counsel to, which individual he's talking to on different occasions, and even clearly, obviously, addressing at times things that need to be corrected or maybe something that needs to be confronted because it's wrong behavior or wrongdoing. That is kind of the the emphasis to some degree of what he's getting to as well. Look with me back in verse 1. He begins by telling Timothy, chapter 5, verse 1, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him, encourage him, as a father, as if he were a father. Now, 
what Paul's clearly indicating, there would be occasions where Timothy would not only need to speak with older men, that he would need to teach older men, even lead older men. That is just the reality. That's why Paul in the prior verses was saying in chapter 4, verse 12, Timothy, look, don't let anybody despise your youth. Seek to be an example of the believer. In other words, Timothy, it's going to be a common temptation because you're younger than some, that they may want to dismiss you, think there's nothing that you can impart, or why would I listen to him? And, and he says they may want to kind of brush you off because of your youthfulness in comparison to them. So, so be wise. And he told them, don't give reasons for people to despise you. Try and counteract that. Try and conduct yourself as a younger person, being aware, hey, my, my youthfulness in comparison to others may be a disadvantage, so therefore, let me be wise that I don't speak in, in kind of youthful, immature, foolish ways, or I don't act in youthful, immature ways, because then people aren't going to respect me all the more. They're going to brush me aside. So he was challenging Timothy to try and do his best and said to counteract that by being a good example in the way he lived and his lifestyle and to be someone who inspired others around him. So Timothy not only would have to speak and teach and lead because he was in a pastoral role, those who were men older than himself, but even periodically at times, guess what else he would have to do? He would also have to correct on occasion. As a part of his pastoral role and as a spiritual leader, if necessary, he would have to identify at times wrong behavior or sin or, or, or kind of correct someone who is misguided. And this is clearly what's being implied here in the idea of verse 1 with this idea of a rebuke being referred to. The word rebuke is sort of a, a, a biblical term that refers to expressing strong disapproval because of someone's wrong behavior expressing firm disapproval because of someone's wrong actions. It describes the appropriate need on occasion when it is necessary to confront someone who is in error or to kind of challenge someone if they're going down a wrong path or doing something wrong. On such occasions, it is loving to actually care enough about both the Lord's honor and other people's welfare, the Bible teaches, to actually at times rebuke to confront, to be willing to address someone's error when that's appropriate and help them see their mistake or help them see the need to change and why they should change. Jesus himself said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, he said this, listen to our Lord's words, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So Jesus said, those that he loves, he's willing at times when needed, when appropriate, to rebuke and to chasten or even discipline. And therefore, in light of that, he says, please be zealous, repent, turn. He was calling the believers he was speaking to to turn away from wrongdoing. Well, as Jesus' servants, letting his spirit work within us, that's what we're to be doing as Christians, letting Christ rule within us as he lives within us by his spirit, we are called in loving commitment to one another as God's family and caring about the Lord's honor to at times allow Jesus, if he would be the one directing us in love and proper compassion, to address error in each other's lives when that may be appropriate, to confront, if need be, ongoing practices of sin, if that's something we see taking place in a fellow believer's life. Now, let me, if you could give me a moment of patience, kind of develop this because I think this is important. Leviticus 19 tells us this. Do not nurse hatred 
in your heart for any of your relatives. That might be a good reminder for Christmas for some of us, right? Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. And then here's, again, these numerous occasions we see this instruction, rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in the guilt of their sin. Interesting, rebuke at times, challenge, correct, those who may be doing what's wrong, he says, so that you don't end up sharing in the guilt of their sin. Wait a minute, I'm not doing what he's doing. How am I sharing the guilt of it? God says you may be sharing in the guilt of it by your silence, by your lack of courage to have enough love in your heart to go outside of your comfort zone. Oh, I don't want to be confrontational. I'm just not a confrontational person. You don't have to be confrontational to confront someone who's making a mistake or erring or driving off of a cliff. The problem is, is people make that as an excuse. The issue is when they have the other problem is you don't know how to talk to somebody without always getting confrontational. That's a bigger problem. The, the, the issue is you can be very loving, very kind. The Bible says that, that a, a, a gentle tongue can break a bone. You don't have to get hostile and, and aggravated and contentious to, to confront somebody and get all worked up and do it in emotions. You can very lovingly, peacefully, calm, calmly expressing love for say, hey, I'm really concerned that I see this going on or I'm aware of this and, 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 and to just confront and to address that. It doesn't have to be this harsh tone. Again, this is what Paul's kind of getting to here. Again, you can be firm and be honest. Proverbs 27 says it this way to us. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. It tells us that Jesus himself gives us this instruction as believers. Luke 17, Jesus tells us this as Christians. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Jesus tells us to do this. So it is not healthy to dismiss or ignore an erring person. We should care enough, the Bible says, to challenge them on occasion. If a rebuke would be necessary with the hope of them getting off a wrong road, making things right, getting back on track. Two very important New Testament passages in regards to having enough love to go after an erring brother or to pursue an erring or uh, sister that's going in a wrong way. Two very important passages, I would encourage you. James chapter five says this, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. The idea is greater destruction if they kept going off that path and will also cover a multitude of sins. Galatians 6.1 tells us this as well in a complimentary way. Brethren, if anyone is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Now, I don't want to preach a whole sermon on Galatians 6.1, but that verse has many wonderful principles in regards to how we're to go about it. The reason why we pursue someone erring with the end goal, ultimately, of not making them feel bad, beating them up, you know, reading the riot act, he says, to restore them. The whole end goal is to bring... Now, that may not be immediate restoration, but if correction is not connected to restoration, you're off. Whether you're a parent, whether you're a boss, whether you're a spiritual leader, whether you're talking to just a brother and sister, the whole goal 
even in correction, is to correct. There may be some things to learn, a process, time, but the whole goal is ultimately to bring about healing, restoration, to bring them back on the path, not just to correct them and kick them to the curb. That's not, that's not a healthy thing. The Bible says those who are, listen, found overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, and again, God says, look, please, if you're going to do it, please be a spirit-filled person. Don't send some carnal person towards them. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Again, there's to be a gentle attitude, a gentle spirit, a gentle tongue. Again, Jesus talks about how a bruised reed, he doesn't break. A smoking flax, he doesn't quench. In other words, Jesus doesn't see a bru- you know, bruised reed. You go to the shore, you see a bruised reed. Oh, that's already broken. Might as well just, might as well break it off. Jesus said, no, I, I actually try and things that are bruised and broken, I try and put them back. I try and salvage them. I try and do whatever I can to do that. That was the heart of our Lord. And so he says, with gentleness, and then he says, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That's so interesting. Why does he say, be careful when you're working with someone who's failed and you're trying to correct and guide and bring them back? to Be careful you're not tempted. I think multiple reasons. Because sometimes if our flesh gets in the way, we can get a little condescending and self-righteous and too harsh, and we can be tempted to err in that way. And other times when you're dealing with people's struggles and maybe failures and sins and you step into somebody's absolute train wreck morally or spiritually, sometimes you got to be careful because then you get exposed to stuff and you hear some stuff in your head that maybe you didn't want in your head. And so you got to keep yourself in check to be careful you don't get drawn in when they start, well, let me tell you what I did. And, and you're going, oh my goodness, I, I didn't need those images. I didn't need those thoughts. And so again, this is why he says, seek the spiritually mature for this. So it is the responsibility of every Christian to a degree to do this. And all the more it is a higher responsibility the Bible teaches, which is why Paul's talking of this, to those who are spiritual leaders. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. And then Paul tells Titus, speak these things, exhort, and then he says this to Titus, rebuke with all authority. In other words, it, Titus, you're a pastoral role. You're an elder. You're a spiritual leader. You have authority from the Lord. You should rebuke with authority and let one one despise you when you do such. So listen, I, I wanted to belabor that for a moment to say it is totally acceptable, healthy, and normal at times to challenge someone if they're erring in a right and an appropriate way. And no matter what someone's age is, as Paul's giving this instruction to Timothy, anyone can enter into error and do things wrong. He says very clearly in verse 1, even those who are what? Older. Even those who are older men at times can err and enter into practices even of ongoing sin or become rebellious or start behaving in a way that's inappropriate And perhaps, even at times, there may be, let me say it this way, there may even be a little bit maybe more of a a propensity towards stubbornness when you're an older man to some degree, and you then wrongly think that because you're older, no one has the right to correct you. No one has the right to challenge you, right? I mean, as a parent, you know that. I mean, what parent likes their child to point out when they're clearly acting wrong or doing something wrong? And so there is that, that just tendency, if we're just all being honest, 
And so he says, look, older men can get off track too, and they may have even a little bit more of a struggle because they think, who are you to correct me? I'm the father, or I'm the patriarch, right? And so th this can be a thing. And he says, so you got to be aware of this. So what is Timothy to do on occasions when he needs to legitimately confront error? And it's definitely the right thing, but the situation has that unique dynamic attached to it where the person he needs to correct, the erring person, is a man that's older than him. How does he navigate that? Well, Paul says you got to be wise and perceptive in how you go about it. And he gives here some spiritual wisdom from a place of maturity as an older man. Paul says, as an older man, let me help, help you how to do this if someone were approaching me. And he cautions Timothy to be careful not to do something in error, but instead to go about it the right way. What does he tell him not to do? Look at the first part of the verse. He says, do not rebuke. And the idea of the term used there, we'll talk about, and your translation may capture it. Don't harshly confront an older man is the idea. That word rebuke that's used in verse one there is not the typical verb that is often used in the New Testament when it's translated rebuke. In fact, that term that gets used there, which is very interesting, this is the only place it's used, and that term rebuke that's used there in the Greek is actually a term that literally means not to strike at. So the idea behind it is not to attack or not to abuse. That's the idea that's being conveyed by that unique term used only here in the text. Timothy, when you're confronting error, trying to correct an older man, be careful, don't go attacking him and striking out at him in this aggressive way, forcefully, where you're being harsh in your words or severe in your attitude or your speech. He's saying, even if you need to offer a correction, don't sharply rebuke an older man. Don't verbally assault him and come up and just kind of launch into attacking where you are perceived as kind of being arrogant. He's saying that would be very immature. And that's going to be really foolish, and it's not going to be very productive. To disrespect and to harshly speak in our tone as a younger person to identify error in an older person's life, that is always going to land in what is wrong and be counterproductive. God would have us clearly to show proper respect, the Bible teaches, to those who are older than us. Again, Leviticus 19.32, God says it this way. God says, you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor, the idea is respect, reverence, the presence of an old man. So again, it's not just a cultural thing, it's a biblical thing. God says those who are in that status, they've aged, he says they should be honored. A degree of reverence and respect is owed towards them. The idea is it's rude and very impolite to abruptly launch into a verbal assault of someone who's an older man. God would say, that's just not good manners. That's just, just biblically poor etiquette. That's a very bad way to conduct oneself. Not to mention, I can tell you this, whenever that happens, you just burn a bridge. That old man ain't listening to you at all now <laughs> because you just burn a bridge through the dishonor or the disrespect. So he says, Timothy, be careful. Don't harshly attack and strike out, but rather, what does he say? He says, exhort him as if he were a father. Like you were your father, look at that older man, view him with respect in the same way like a child speaking to their father, right? And any child showing 
proper manners towards their father figure or their father in the home is going to be, should be respectful, right, in their attitude and in their words when they're speaking to a father. So when dealing with an older man, we want to endeavor, God's word says, to honor their age and their status in our treatment. Make it the approach to appeal to that older man respectfully, courteously, in a in a honest but yet firm and kind compassionate attitude where you can speak the truth but yet you're trying to be encouraging to exhort the word means to encourage or to inspire towards what is right the idea is kind of like how a, a, a loving coach can identify maybe something needs to adjust in a player's performance but but he also wise you i want to inspire you to correct what you're not doing good on the field But I believe in you. Get out there and to kind of inspire that player to go out and just do better. And this is the idea. He's saying, look, when you speak to an older man, encourage in your tone, appeal in love, show the respect that's needed. And why is that important? Not just because it's respectful, but if I can come back to in conclusion of this first section here, to endeavor to do that, you're going to get maximum receptivity. That's the benefit. You're going to get maximum receptivity with that older man. The idea is by doing this, Timothy, you'll do what you can to soften his heart and to minimize his stubbornness to just want to say as an older man, who's going to tell me what to do? I'm I'm older, I know. And he says, you'll soften his heart. You'll allow his guard to come down. It'll make it easier for him to listen to you. It'll make him more willing to be receptive, to consider what you're saying. If you're pointing out some error or saying, hey, you're, you're going down a wrong path, it'll be loving to help him to be more open to change. Secondly, he then says in verse one, how to relate to younger men, that is to those his age, you might say, or those even younger than him. He says to relate to younger men as brothers, that is treat and relate to them in a spirit of humility, lovingly caring about them like they're your brother, view them as your comrades on the battlefield, wanting them to do well, seeing the younger men, his age and other, like their partners, like their teammates, not having a self-righteous attitude because of his role, just looking at those around you as, as equals, as brothers, as comrades. And anybody knows, in a good, healthy relationship anyway, brothers are supposed to look out for each other, right? That's what brothers do. They look out, they may even fight like cats and dogs, but they will fight with each other to the bitter end, right? That's what brothers do. They look out for one another, and, and they're always there for one another, and especially in bad times. And if a brother is erring, a brother is going to come to his brother and care enough to confront him and say, what are you doing, man? And, and because of that relational connection, they're going to not want to see them harm themselves. So Timothy, certainly, he should speak the truth but in a spirit of love when he's talking to others around him who are the younger men in the church. But he should never be self-righteous. That's never good. Never kind of domineering in his tone, but trying to win them over, courageous enough to confront what's going on, but trying to win them over as a brother in such a way that they would see and they'd be inspired. So again, kind of Timothy, look, it's okay to be firm. You can be like a big brother spiritually, like a big brother maybe talking to a younger brother, but he says, but do it in a way that you're careful about doing such. You know, Proverbs 27 tells us this, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. So if somebody's genuinely our friend and somebody is genuinely your friend, you'll know who your real friends are because they love you enough 
and they trust the relationship enough that they're willing to go outside of the comfort zone and maybe step on your toe or say something that may be hard to hear because they care more about your welfare than you temporarily being mad at them. That's how you can tell they're your friend. And so the Bible says faithful are those who are you know, willing to wound someone as a friend for their welfare and for their benefit. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul gives some really great comments to help Timothy in redirecting those off course. Let me read them to you. 2 Timothy 2, Paul says this, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, listen, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. See that? In humility, correcting those in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So see, it's almost like a, a POW rescue mission. The devil sometimes, he says, even Christians, he will take them captive to do his will instead of the will of God. And when we see that as a fellow brother in the Lord or sister in the Lord, he says, with a spirit of humility, we should go, we should try and correct, hoping that God will bring them to repentance. And I love how he uses the language that they'd come to know the truth and they would come to their senses. What a great statement. That, that you speak to them and you're hoping, Lord, I hope they come to their senses through this. But you realize that ultimately, once you speak the truth in love, you can't domineer them. You can't back them into a corner, beat them into submission. You, you gotta just speak to them and let the Lord work by his spirit. And hopefully, as you seek to be your brother's keeper, they'll, they'll see what you're saying and the Holy Spirit will work and bring them to a place of correction. Now, in verse two, he then tells Timothy as a man, as a pastor, as a spiritual leader as well, how to relate to the ladies within the church with respect and exercising good manners as well. Notice he says, to relate, to treat the older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with all purity. So Timothy, much like the older men, notice, was to show special honor as well to the older women. When he related to a woman who was older than him, he was to view her just like she was his mother. So when he interacted with her, if he spoke to her, the way that he treated her, he was to give honor towards her just like he was spending time with talking to or interacting with his own mother. And look, if I can illustrate, any honorable young man is going to treat his mama properly, correct? Any honorable young man is going to be respectful in how he behaves towards his mother, how he speaks to his mother, relates to her. He's going to give that dignity to her that she deserves. And even in, at times, if and when, she naturally mothers him as a younger man. He allows that to a degree in respectfulness because he realizes that's just what moms do. They nurture. It's what they do. And so again, kind of yielding to that. And the same, the Bible is saying, is true regarding showing biblical manners in relating to older women amongst us from time to time. That when we're relating to a woman that is older than us, and I think it's fair to say both as a lady or as a man, that we should relate to her with a respect like she's a mother figure, like it was our own mother that we're interacting with, giving that respect and, and 
in our attitude, in our words, like we're interacting courteously and honorably, like we're dealing and talking to our own mother. And I'll tell you, what an exercise of good biblical manners that would be, would it not? If we would relate to and interact with older women and treat them just like we're interacting with our own mother, honoring their age and their status. Again, even at times, as I said, mothers nurture. If that's what, don't harshly refuse it. Oh, stop mothering me. But just, it's what moms do. It's, it's, it's the nature of a mother, and just to respect that, not to be rude or unkind. And look, especially if and when it may be necessary, just like with the older men, and just like with the older or the younger men, that if it may be necessary from time to time, because anyone's prone to have to identify error in an older woman's life, or to correct ongoing sin in a woman's life that may be older than you in some way to speak about that, that just like with the older man, to take that wise approach, be careful, don't be disrespectful, don't be domineering. He's saying, look, relate to her with an intentional degree of honor. And look, I think this is good because when a young man is arrogant and disrespectful in his tone and his words towards his mother, most of the time, usually a brother or any male onlooker wants to do what? Just break his jaw, typically. It's just like, you just don't do that, bro. Just that, that's just, it's arrogant. It's, it's, and that's extremely rude and foolish and immature for a young teenager, let's say, to, to mouth off to his mom. And look, God's just saying in the same way, look, that's true. We should honor the older women like their mothers, relating to them in that way, giving them that due respect and how we relate and speak to them. And then fourthly, he addresses the other category in verse 2, advising Timothy how to properly relate to the younger women. And again, that would apply to those women his age, those who were his age, as well as those who were younger than him in some way chronologically. He was to use good etiquette, and manners there as well. He says, Timothy, here's how I want you to relate to the younger women among the church as if they are, look at verse 2, sisters with all purity. So as men, we're to view and treat younger women just like we're interacting with one of our sisters. And technically, from a biblical perspective, spiritually, they actually are, right? The Bible says we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. So we should interact with them in that way, caring about them, being honorable towards them, showing respect towards them, treating them well, relating to them the way a brother would want someone to relate to and treat his sister. And so he says, this is important. And again, if I can illustrate, a brother is always going to be looking out for, right, and be protective of his sister, especially if it's his younger sister all the more, right? So we can understand the dynamic of how a brother views his sister, and God says that should be our mindset in how we relate to younger women, those our age maybe or those younger than us, older women like it's our mom, those our age, those younger than us that we would focus and look and think about and have a mindset toward them relationally with a pure, loving attitude. This is, this is just like it's my sister. And this is very important. That's why God cautions proper biblical manners here, saying, treat them like a sister. And look what he adds at the end, with all what? Purity. With purity. Our heavenly father, just like any father, has little toleration for perversity 
with one of his daughters, or being overly friendly and inappropriately flirtatious towards a sister in the Lord. In the same way, a brother would fiercely guard the welfare of his sister from an unhealthy man or inappropriate behavior, it is wise etiquette to conduct ourselves this way towards younger women, doing all we can to respect them, to honor their purity, to behave like we would say gentlemen, to not be crossing lines, to not be over-friendly, to not behave in a way that's just inappropriate, and especially, certainly, especially when it's in relation to ministering and, and ministers, that there would be a strong caution there, not ignoring the sinful human nature where you risk wrong perceptions. If I could give my advice on the matter, I would simply say this. I would say to all of us, make it a rule to never be alone with someone of the opposite sex unless it is your wife, your own biological daughter, or maybe your own biological mother. Outside of that, no. Never, period, just don't do it. And I tell you this, if that were to be done to a degree, there would be a lot less problems in the church. There'd be a lot less problems even outside of the church. If that just general sense of etiquette and proper manners were taken into consideration, you can call it legalistic to me, that's just wise etiquette. It's just appropriate. It's just respectful. There are times where if I have a female ask me to you know, counsel or ask me questions, typically my response is, look, out of respect towards my wife and my own marriage and out of respect towards you as a lady, we need to arrange a way that we can speak with another man present or another woman present or my wife present or after. Again, and I, I say that. And even with that, to me, it's, it, if it's a phone call, I, I'm not into the multiple phone call thing. I'll take a phone call one time, but I don't want to leave a window of opportunity there for emotional connections or anything else in regards to that. And so it's necessary at times, even as it is with the older man, younger man, and as well the older woman, sometimes what if a younger woman needs correction? What if she's in a practice of sin? What if she's behaving in a wrong way or erring? How is that to be addressed? Well, God's saying here, use judgment. Relate to her like she's your sister and be very serious about honoring her purity, which means I think that the practicality of that means if you're going to talk to a woman your age or younger than you, then do it in an open location before the eyes of other people. You can be alone without being alone. Why, everybody else's fellowship, and two people can come sit up here and talk with everybody else watching, and not everybody's listening to their conversation. So look for wise ways to be cautious and careful, or as I just mentioned, include another person. You know, I try and make it a practice if I'm speaking to a female in a direct way personally, and she starts to get emotional. As soon as she starts to get emotional, I instantly start looking for another woman who I can go like this to. Because I figure if she needs a hug, let somebody else deliver that. Not taking me down, and I'm not letting anybody take you down. You're my sister. And so just using judgment and wisdom, not giving the devil opportunity, ensuring there's no emotional connections, speaking in a kind and compassionate way, again, not being harsh. It's like talking to your sister. You're not going to browbeat your sister. You're not going to manipulate your sister. If someone's sister was mistreated or manipulated by a guy, as I said, the brother would be pretty upset with that, right? I mean, he'd be going after a guy like that with a beatdown, I would assume, if somebody mistreated his sister. And so let me say, and sort of moving on from this, 
just as a word of, of love, and since I have the podium, I'm going to do such, if you dishonor one of our church mothers or you disrespect one of our precious church sisters, I know a few brothers that I'd gladly have take you behind the church and take you to the manners. <laughs> now, of course, I'm joking, or maybe I'm not. <laughs> Probably more not since I raised three daughters. But we should be honorable. God says, don't rebuke an older man harshly. Exhort him like a father. Be, be, be wise in regards to that, respectful. Younger men as brothers. Older women like their mothers. Younger women like there are sisters with all purity. Notice biblical manners include showing respect and honor, humility, kindness, being considerate of whom we're interacting with. To me, this all ties together to a major key of just manners relationally in Christian manners, which I find in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, Philippians 2, 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's called being considerate in all ways, that we're always thinking about, I'm not the only human being on the planet. I should always be thinking in a considerate way, courteous. Why well, I want to do this? Okay, maybe you want to do this, but is that courteous to everyone else around you in the room? I want to do it, but is that considering everyone else? Again, and we should always be thinking, what's in this person's best welfare? And when we do that, something really healthy and wonderful happens. Now, if you just turn with me quickly to Ephesians 4, I just want to leave this passage with you. For we have a few extra moments here this morning just to there are numerous passages, I believe, Ephesians 4 is one of them, paramount, I think, that deal with the subject of biblical manners, biblical etiquette, we might say, proper ways to do relationships. To me, this is a great one with lots of insights how to relate to each other properly in relationships. Let me just run through this quickly, Ephesians 4, verse 25, just look at some of these great concepts, and I encourage you to do a good study, meditate, great principles of instruction in relationships here. Ephesians 4, verse 25, the first thing he says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Christian relationships he's talking about here. We're members of one another. We're a part of the same body, right? We're a part of a family. So everything we do because we're interdependent affects one another. That's why we should consider one another. So here he says, biblical manners, good relationship instruction. Don't ever give in to any form of dishonesty in communications because you're members of one another. Imagine if the nerve impulses in my body at times from different locations were sending lying, false, wrong signals to my brain. So I put my hand on a hot stove, and the skin is melting, and the flesh is deteriorating, but my nerve cells there are sending a message to my brain, it's okay, nothing's wrong. That'd be, that'd be pretty bad, right? That dishonesty would be lying to my brain, and so I would be, instead I wanted to send the right signal, move your hand quick, man. <laughs> and so in the same way, if we're being dishonest in any way with one another, we're harming one another. The Bible tells us we should always speak the truth, but we should do it in love. And again, we don't want to betray trust. We don't want to damage trust, cause suspicion. We should just always be honest with one another. Open, honest communication, crucial to all relationships, crucial 
as brothers and sisters in Christ, very valuable honesty and relationship should go without saying. Old-fashioned rule, but it's good biblical manners. Verse 26 and 27, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So notice here he addresses the subject of anger that at times gets aroused in our emotions. Come on. Do people actually get angry with one another in families? Well, I don't need to set up a camera in your household. Come on. The church is a family. There are going to be times where inadvertently there's offense, there's misunderstanding, you know, somebody misunderstands. Things get said, somebody's in a mood, somebody in a moment. Things are going to happen. People make a decision, they handle things a certain way, and there are all these different reasons, and the devil just loves... to manipulate, but the bottom line is you can't function together in a job, in a family, anywhere without from time to time angering one another. It happens. And God says, look, it's just a reality. Anger is a legitimate emotion. It indicates something happened. The Bible just says, be angry and do not sin. Oh, I'm a Christian. I don't get angry anymore. I don't get angry. I'm a Christian. God gets angry. Just says he's slow to anger. Anger is a legitimate emotional response. You're, you're violating verse 25 if you're telling me you don't get angry. Now you're lying. <laughs> be angry. God says it's okay to be angry. There are legitimate reasons of time. Something happens, something said, something transpires. You're, that angered me. That, 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 that offended. And it looks, so he says you can be angry, but he says, look, but when you're angry, you channel your anger constructively in a response, not destructively in a strong emotional angry reaction. Anger never legitimizes erupting like a volcano, whether that's verbally or an action. So he says, you can be angry, but it's never a right to sin. You don't get a right to sin and dishonor God and disobey God just because you're angry. You deal with your anger. You talk it through. You find a constructive way to work through it in a situation. And he says, you do it sooner rather than later so you don't nurse and hold animosity. He says, don't let the sun set on your wrath. The idea is begin addressing it sooner rather than later. Channel your emotions, but do it constructively, and don't just bury it, because then you'll just bury it and suppress it, and it'll be the root of wrath, and you'll just end up freaking out later on anyway. So he says, address anger, deal with it. Verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let him who stole steal no longer. When someone steals, they're a thief, what will we might say? If someone steals and they're a thief, they're a selfish taker. That's what a thief is, right? They're selfishly taking something that they should not. So he says, if you are in a degree stealing, taking in a selfish way from others in any form, and there are lots of ways we can do it, if you're selfishly taking too much, he says, cut that out. You're a Christian. Jesus said it's better to give than receive. So he says our heart should be to one not be a selfish taker, but instead what? A a generous, productive contributor. He says the person who's stealing, stop stealing, go to work, labor with your hands, stop taking from others, labor with your hands, do something. Look, God redeems work. Look what he says, that you may have something to give to him who has need. Instead of being a selfish taker all the time, he says, become a productive contributor, and God even redeems work. He says, it's not only just to pay our bills, it's also that once you pay your bills, at times you can even help out other people who are genuinely struggling. And God redeems work in this beautiful way. 
and says to be a helpful contributor rather than a selfish taker. Good manners. Verse 29, more good manners. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. That word corrupt is the term that describes a piece of rotten fruit. So there's the image. God says, when you speak, don't speak in a way with your attitude or your words where it's like feeding someone a piece of rotten fruit. Here, why don't you swallow that? Tell me what that does in your gut. Right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Stupid. Who said that? In the crazy nursery rhyme. Most people I know, many people I know, have a harder time overcoming emotional wound than they do a broken arm. So he says, don't, don't speak in a way, don't let you. So he says, the idea here is we got to guard our words, we got to be careful, we got to do what we can to kind of avoid unhelpful, unhealthy communication, which we all can be tempted and prone to, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. The more kind of familiar we get with people, sometimes we just get more prone, whether it's criticizing or complaining. I don't know about you. I've been married for almost, you know, coming up on 28 years here in the next couple of weeks. The longer you're married, it's very easy to criticize, right? I mean, you get good at it. You know somebody very well. It's like, I can find anything easy. What well, gets difficult is being complimentary and courteous and kind and edifying. And so he says, look, be careful with the complaining and the criticizing and the unkind and unhealthy things. Be careful. And he says, instead, speak, look what he says, what is good for necessary edification, building up, strengthening, that it may impart grace to the hearer. So we got to guard ourselves against corrupt, hurtful, unhealthy speaking coming out of our mouth. That's good manners. Watch your mouth. And then he says, be intentional to try and speak in ways where you impart grace, to edify and to build people up when you speak to them. The idea is you got to be proactive because, again, real easy, I, we could naturally complain, right? We can naturally be smart or sarcastic, but it almost takes like supernatural effort <laughs> to try and speak something courteous, to just compliment somebody and just to build them up. That, you almost have to work at that and be intentional. But again, that's just politeness that's trying to show good manners in how we speak. Verse 30 says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, interesting, right in the midst of this list, don't lie, be careful with your anger, be productive and don't take from people, speak in kind ways, not rude ways. Right in the middle of he says, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit that you're sealed with. Why does he say that? Well, the Spirit of God dwells inside of the Christian. And because the Spirit of God dwells inside of the Christian, he can empower us to live different than we used to live before we were saved. And he can empower us to live very different than the way that unsaved people in the world do and the way they talk and behave in their jobs and their families. And so he says, when you and I aren't being honest, when we're not speaking the truth in love, when we're being rude with our words rather than kind with our words, when we're being lazy and unproductive rather than contributing and helping, when we're letting anger make us sin instead of handling our anger properly, he says, man, you're grieving the spirit of God dwelling inside of you. Why? And that word grieve there literally is the same term that's used to describe in the Greek language when someone would, would grieve and sob over the death of a loved one. We know that kind of pain, what that is, right? And, and he's saying that's the grief we cause. And why? Because the Holy Spirit within, when he sees us violate these very truths, he's grieving going, why 
why are you behaving like this? You could live differently. I'm here to empower you. You don't have to act like that. And so it grieves him when we as Christians violate these very things. And then verse 31 and 32, very direct and good wisdom. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, which is intentionally wishing harm on someone, malice. And he says, when these things begin to grow in our lives, kind of like weeds, right? He says, get this stuff out of your life. As soon as you see it coming in your flesh, by the power of the Holy Spirit and repentance and asking, he says, weed this kind of stuff out. A little bit of bitterness, get it out of there. Get this stuff out of there. It will defile your relationships. And then he says, and this is the good stuff, the plant in your heart, verse 32, be kind to one another. Boy, that sounds a lot like manners, doesn't it? Be kind, Johnny. Be kind. Be tenderhearted. Be sensitive, the ideas. Compassionate. Be gentle with people. Be kind. Tenderhearted. That you're, you actually care. And you're tenderhearted with people. Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. He lands it where? Because he knows we're all going to fail. Forgiving one another which means that's a necessary part of human relationships in the church, in our families. And notice the standard of forgiveness, he says, forgive even as God in Christ forgave you. How did God forgive us? God forgives us immediately. Did God say, well, yeah, I forgive you, but I'm going to nurse a grudge for the next six years? No, immediately. God forgives immediately. He lets it go. He forgives immediately. God forgives completely right? Completely. He chooses to remember it no more. He, he lets it go. And God forgives continually. Does he not? <laughs> continually. He never says, look, I mean, I can forgive that and that, but I'm sorry, you, you just went too far this time. I mean, I can forgive this and this and this, but I, you just, wait a minute, God's standard. And I understand, here's the thing, you don't understand if you only understood what the... I can't forgive them. I can't, I just can't forgive them. Right, now we're on a right track because you're correct. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, God can help you to forgive them if you'd be willing to. Because forgiveness is supernatural. It's not natural, right? You just cut me off on the highway. I have murderous thoughts in my head, <laughs> right? And when we do really hard, I mean, listen, folks, this is how, Good holiday, but when we do really harmful, painful things to stuff as people, we do some really nasty stuff to each other as human beings. Forgiveness is supernatural. Stop this nonsensical idea that you think in your own effort you can work up forgiveness. You have got to come before God and say, God, I don't want to forgive them. I, don't, I, I, I can't. But if you will empower me by your spirit and flood me with the love, God will miraculously by his spirit allow you to be able to do that. Because anything he commands us to do, he empowers us to do it as well. Amen? Let's stand together. We all got good manners now. Father, thank you for your word and for the power of your Holy Spirit to, Lord, even live in the ways that you call us to and want us to. And, Lord, thank you even for this timely section that we can kind of, as the family of Calvary Chapel Gateway, Lord, just in this holiday season, Lord, these are great reminders and instructions in a timely way as we walk through this season where we're interacting with lots of people. 
Lord, help us by the grace of God to remember these truths that your word speaks to us about. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us to honor you in the way that we conduct ourselves amongst one another relationally. And Father, as always, if there be any with us today who've not yet surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, please, Lord, we ask that you would let them know that you want to forgive their sins, that you want to release them from guilt, that you want to spare them from hell, Lord, and give them the gift of eternal life if they'd simply humble themselves and receive what you're offering to them. Before we sing a final song, let me just say today, if you're here and you're weighed down under the guilt of your sin, you're not sure what's going to happen when you die, that God can change that eternal destiny right now today. Jesus is alive. He's with us this morning. He loves you. And you failed like we've all failed, and our sin makes us guilty before a holy God. But Jesus took the punishment on your behalf. He died for your sins and mine, and he rose again. And today, if you call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Jesus wants to forgive you and cleanse your guilt. He wants to give you the gift of eternal life so that you can go to heaven and be spared of hell. And his spirit will come in and help you live a new life to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to do that this morning by receiving what Jesus is offering, it's a free gift, but you have to choose to receive it. And if you want to call on the name of the Lord, I'm going to pray a prayer right now, and you can use this set of words to just communicate right where you are to God and and ask him to save you today. You can say, God, I am so sorry. I know that I'm a guilty sinner. Thank you that Jesus died for my sins. Jesus, save my soul. Please forgive me. Come into my life. Give me the gift of eternal life today. Today I choose to follow you. And I thank you for what you've done in my heart. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.